Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, July the 9th, 2012. This is episode 937 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, you went a few days without a show there. I took some time off for 4th of July. We actually went to Texas, right? And we went and we were looking, like we have our apartment down there that we keep, uh, uh, so we can't place to stay when we're down there, but we... We're looking for our new home, basically. We've decided that we want a place with more land. I've talked about this in the past. And we went all over the place. And we found a place in, in, in just just east of the Metroplex. It's honestly really, really close access back into the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, but it's out in the middle of nowhere on a county road. And uh, we went to plenty of places like that from that area east all the way out uh, to... Uh, north of 30, south of 20, over the past couple of weeks we've been looking. We were let down by a lot of places not being what we thought they would be when we got there. And I think we found the perfect place. And we've got an offer pending on it. So hopefully Operation Texan will uh, will kick off very, very shortly. And uh, we'll begin uh, a new chapter in our lives and in the the, uh, the world of survival podcasts. Because if we get this place, and I'm pretty hopeful they'll take our offer that we've made, uh, we're going to have the opportunity to do some things that we've never been able to do before. It's about eight acres of land. It is pretty much a blank slate. It's a beautiful little uh, ranch house uh, with a beautiful gate, and the whole place is gated and fenced, uh, broken into multiple paddocks. It's mostly pasture. It hasn't been abused pasture, but it's not been well cared for either. It's 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 okay. There's been a horse out there dropping horse uh, horse manure all over the place. Uh, from one end to the other, they've done a good job of rotating him around. They've got some goats and stuff like that, and they wanted to actually sell the animals with it. And we're like, we don't want to deal with somebody else's animals and a transition, and it's probably going to be you know a two month transition to getting everything uh, moved into the place and all. So we said, you know, sell your animals off to somebody else or whatever. But they've got uh, a goat barn, a uh, horse barn. It's just an awesome place. So all that stuff is already in place, and then the land's kind of a blank slate. A few cedar trees here and there. Couple other trees, some willows and stuff, but most of it's wide open. Uh, nice catchment to the land. So there's a little update today on uh, the next chapter, and hopefully tomorrow I'll get on the air and I'll tell you that we have a sale pending instead of an offer pending, and uh, give you more details about it. I don't want to jinx it, but I wanted you guys to know what I was up to while we were gone. So I think we found a really awesome place. All right. Uh, before I get into today's topic, of course, it's a listener feedback show being a Monday. These are emails that you send me at jack at survivalpodcast.com. And you put question for Jack, comment for Jack, video for Jack, story for Jack, something for Jack. One word for Jack in the subject line. That gets it in the queue. That gets it reviewed. And it just might end up on a show like this uh, if, uh, if enough people send it or if it's cool enough or different enough or something like that. I get about several hundred a day anyway like that. So uh, a lot of them don't get on the air, but I do try to read them all and pick out some different things each week. For you, and today is no exception. Before we get to those, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Harvest Eating, the illustrious Chef Keith Snow. Uh, some really cool seasonings is one of the things I always tell you to check out when you go to harvesteating.com. Um, his new low and slow barbecue is freaking awesome. Uh, I'm out of it. I need to order some from him. He sent me one can of it. 
Uh, I wish you would have just told me about it instead of sending me a can because I would have just ordered a bunch of it because I already knew it was going to be really good, uh, and it was, and I need to restock and actually stock up on that. Uh, he also does a great online cooking show where you can learn how to make uh, cooking a life skill. I think it's something that we really need to be better at in America is cooking for ourselves. We'd spend less time out. That puts more money uh, in the bank, and that gives us more opportunity to create freedom. And, folks, when times are tough, you know, uh, the guy that can cook – pretty valued person, so check out HarvestEating.com today and let Chef Keith teach you to cook seasonally and locally. And remember, if you have rural free delivery TV, and those of you on Dish and uh, Direct TV and stuff like that, you definitely do, uh, you can catch Chef Keith's new uh, television show. He's on TV now on RFD TV. Uh, check him out whenever you get a chance. Next up today, Western Botanicals. You know, I haven't really spent a lot of time in front of uh, doctors uh, throughout my life. I have tried to take care of myself. I'm not saying that's right for everybody, but I'm telling you, it's it's really, I think, got me from, uh, helped me become healthier. I really think that if I had, let's say, been going to a doctor when I was overweight, they would have probably told me I was borderline diabetes, put me on medication, and kind of screwed me up. But I've always relied on... Uh, Medica uh, uh, herbal uh, remedies as much as I possibly can. I don't even want to take an aspirin or a Motrin unless I absolutely have to. I, I try to use the herbal stuff, and I've done it my whole life. And, you know, if I'm having trouble getting to sleep, I have a, a cup of tea, things like that. But sometimes I need something that I just don't have growing in my backyard or can't find growing in my area. Or sometimes I have an issue and I don't know what I need. Well, I pick the phone up. I call Western Botanicals, and Dr. Christian Sinner, one of his staff, helps me and tells me what I need. And the thing is, whatever it is I'm looking for or whatever it is they tell me that I need, they have. They have everything. It's unbelievable the selection and the care that they put into taking care of their customers. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade today. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members, Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps. Active duty and prior service, please email me before you join at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put military discount or service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did, and I will give you a special discount code to thank you for your service before you join. With that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up. Today I want to remind you again, though, kind of the first story of the day, I will be at the Self-Reliance Expo uh, July 27th and 28th in Arlington, Texas, and you can come meet me there at the Arlington Convention Center. There will be a link in today's show notes for more information about that. So do come out and see me. And with that, I've got the housekeeping completely wrapped up this time, and let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, when when I did a show, I think it was last week, or the, it was week before, I did on lacto-fermentation. I had mentioned making yogurt cheese, and I said basically the way you make yogurt cheese is you dump yogurt into some cheesecloth, You tie it, you hang it up, you can put it in a colander and put it in the refrigerator, or you can hang it up and suspend it over a bowl in you know an air-conditioned room, and you get a little bit tanger of a product that way. But that's the basic entire process to make yogurt cheese. Hang the yogurt in cheesecloth and let the whey drip out. And then you have the whey, and you can use the whey as a great... Uh, a great booster to just drink it straight, or you can use it to like in, in increase uh, the, the the fermentation of lacto fermented foods like uh, sauerkraut and things like that. You can put a tablespoon or a couple tablespoons of that into your salt water brine, and that will actually kick the fermentation off a little bit quicker because all that good lactobacillus is down in there. Well, somebody posted this on the blog, and it's funny how synchronicity hits sometimes. It says just a tip, tip on cheesecloth. That gauzy stuff that they sell as cheesecloth is terrible. You need several layers, and it's pretty much disposable, so it costs a ton. 
A really good sub substitute for commercial cheesecloth is flour sack towels. Target sells a pack of four for five bucks. Uh, so here's the deal with that. Um, this is really kind of interesting. So I, I did a whole show about that, and I thought to myself, self, you know what? I'd like to make some more yogurt cheese because we don't have any. So I was on my way home, and I went to the store, and I went in to see if they had any cheesecloth, and they didn't. I went into like the cooking section and all, and this is before this comment, and I found these flour sacks uh, cloths. And I looked at them, and I said, these look like they'll be better than cheesecloth. So I took them home. And when this person posted this, I was at that time actually uh, had just come from taking the uh, the yogurt cheese out of the flour sack cloth. And I have to tell you, it works great. And it's really easy to clean and reuse over and over and over again. So it's called a flour sack cloth. And you'll find them where like the cloths and rags and stuff like that in most stores in the cooking area. So I thought I'd put that out because not only was it a great tip, I had already tested it before uh, I did it. So it's a, it's a proven... Uh, Jack approved replacement, and I think it's an improvement over using conventional cheese cheesecloth uh, for any kind of cheese making or, or gathering of whey for for fermentation. So, little uh, little tip there in the beginning of today's show. On a more somber note, second story of the day somebody sent me, and let's see who actually sent that. And let me give you who. Uh, Pat was the one that made the uh, suggestion. Now Donna sent me this article off of CNN, and it's about the storms that hit the Northeast, and the power outages, and then the following heat wave that came directly after it. So I think most people are aware of kind of what's gone on up there. There's a huge, huge uh, storm that went through, and it was really didn't last very long, but high winds knocked out a bunch of power, caused a bunch of damage, trees down, stuff like that. And then after that happened, of course, people are without power, and then the heat wave came in, and then a few more storms came in behind it. Now, this wasn't tornadoes. This wasn't a hurricane. This was just a good old-fashioned summer thunderstorm. Well, my grandfather used to say, I see a barn burner coming like one of those. Just a big old thunderstorm that came through real quick and left a lot of damage in its wake. But again, I mean, the biggest thing people are dealing with here is just simply having their power out for a while. Well, uh, as unprepared as we are, you would expect that maybe people in West Virginia... Uh, would be a little bit better prepared because, well, you know, you've got the mountains up there and all, and you kind of have that reputation for Appalachia and all. But um, it's apparently not so much. Here's a story on CNN News, and I was going to play the audio for you, but I can't get the dadgone video player on CNN uh, to play for me today. Anyway, the, st the story headline is, In West Virginia, mass feedings planned in a wake of storms, heat wave. I'll read a little bit of it to you. Governments and charities Wednesday rushed critically needed food and water to thousands of hungry West Virginians who have pantries emptied after storms and an accompanying heat wave. The American Red Cross in West Virginia prepared to hold its first mass feedings in four regions. Um, said Becky Howard, Regional Chief Development Officer. The charity expect, is expected to serve the first meals later Wednesday, provide up to 25,000 meals a day beginning Thursday, she told CNN. The scale of the crisis in the mountainous state was clear. Utility crews working in incredible heat cleared down lines both on roads and remote mountaintops. A food drive was in its second day. Boil water advisories were in, in place in many communities, and ice was being trucked in from as far away as Louisiana. There, was, there were mass dumpings of spoiled food across the state due to power outages after last week's storm, and grocery stores in many areas could not open due to the lack of electricity, Governor Earl Ray Tomlin said. Officials were sending about 40 big truckloads of water around the state each day, he said. Those affected by the storm are beginning to receive much-needed food. 
Tomlin said about 300,000 customers were without power Wednesday morning. That number dropped to 238,000 by evening. Quote, one of the biggest challenges is the geography. We are spread out in various pockets across the state and have been hit hard, said Howard. Charities, including Mountain Mission, stepped in to help neighbors. Quote, this really surprised us, said Mountain Mission's John Roberts. During a stop at Akawa City Community Center in Charleston, I've been doing this job for 12 years with the help of a lot of uh, fires. We help with a lot of fires, a lot of floods, and things like that. The storm snuck up on us, end quote. And you can read the rest of the article if you want to. I'll have a link in today's show notes, of course, as I always do. But I think a big takeaway here is this. West Virginia has a population of about 1.8 million, all right, um, total people. Now, each person doesn't have their own house. So if we figure a median household of an average of four people, which might be a little high, I don't know, there's a lot of people that are single, that live by themselves and stuff like that, but uh, I think that's a fair number. And we take 1.8 million and we divide it by four, we get 450,000 households. And 300 of 450,000 households then roughly were without power. That's a significant portion of the state. That's almost the whole damn state out of power. And West Virginia wasn't the only state. That's why they're trucking ice in from places like Louisiana instead of places like Virginia and North Carolina and, and, and what have you. Because a lot of the surrounding area is dealing with the same problem. But the big lesson here is, here are all these people. And I'm not putting anybody down. I'm just saying this is the facts on the ground. Here are all these people sitting out waiting for someone to come bring them food and water, for somebody to feed them, for somebody to give them water for sanitation and water for drinking in the middle of one of the worst heat waves of all time. How much misery, how much misery could have been prevented if most of these people had four to five days worth of food that was storable without refrigeration, just four or five days. The ability to cook with something like a propane grill, And a generator, just a little one, that could run some fans and 50 gallons of gasoline. And how many of these people seriously could have done this without breaking the bank? I mean, you're talking, you can go buy a little bitty generator down at Tractor Supply for about 200 bucks. I'm talking about one of them little ones, little two-cycle ones or something like that. And just be able to run that, a few extension cords, a few fans so you can keep cool. And, you know, 50 or 60 gallons of water put by How many, how many people would be much better off if they had at least that much going on right now? And it's, it's that simple. And then here's the bigger lesson. These people are screwed right Well, by now, a lot of them are in a lot better shape. This is an older story. Uh, a lot of the power's back on now. It's nowhere near as bad as it was back when the story came out. But they were screwed for a while. They were screwed while 90% of the country was able to help them. 90% of the country just, you know, they... It was 4th of July, people ate bratwurst and barbecue and drank cold beer and celebrated America's Independence Day. And here these people are completely screwed and everybody around the country does a little bit here and there to chip in, relief efforts, get, and, and they got help. And they were still in a bad way. So what happens, what happens America when we're completely unprepared the way that these folks work, because most of us are not prepared. When I say us, I don't mean this audience, right? I mean most of us as in America. What percentage of Americans do you think are prepared to deal with seven days like this? And the reality is almost none. It's probably less than 5%, I'm guessing here. I don't really know. Maybe one day I'll do like a preparedness survey, 
Like, but I gotta get guys other than you people responding to me. I gotta get the average people somehow. Like, I'd have to do it without even my name on it, without telling you about it, and then release the information. Uh, you know, some kind of like third party service to do it for me or something. But I'd like to know that. What percentage of Americans are actually prepared to deal with seven to 14 days without power and without emergency responders? And, uh, or with limited response? And then let's say what happens if we have a blackout that affects 50% of the country, whether it's a natural or man-made problem. I mean, please remember that last year there were over a million people without power in the southwest because a guy went out to an electrical substation in the middle of the desert, changed a part. He didn't even do anything wrong. He did everything right. He didn't technically break anything, but when he changed the part... And whatever he did, like the grid went to reset itself using its automation, and the grid shut itself down. And it took them two days to fix that. Because a guy changed a part at a substation in the middle of the desert, and he didn't even screw up. So the potential for something like this to be much bigger is out there. As bad as it is to be without power in a heat wave, if you are without power, without something like a good stockpile of firewood or propane, In the winter, it can be much, much worse. Yes, you can take your food and go bury it in the snow and keep it okay. You can bring snow or ice inside and then put it into your uh, chest freezer and basically turn it into a giant cooler. Yes, you can do these things. But you also have a lot more potential for injury and damage from frostbite and, and, and things like that. And I'm talking about like if we have one, something like this go on when the temperatures are below zero what that could mean for people that aren't prepared to deal with it. Especially in the South. Uh, back, what was it, two years ago? Was it last year? Uh, it was two years ago. When, or it was, it was last year, when the ice storm hit in Dallas-Fort Worth. The city was shut down for a week. Fortunately, very little power was lost. Uh, it was an ice storm that ended up with a lot of uh, ice on the, on the pavement, but very little on the power lines and things like that because of the way that it came in. But it went down below 20 degrees, And the highs during the day were still in the low 20s to high teens for a straight week. It was the week leading up to the Super Bowl. Everybody was freaked out, thought it was going to ruin the Super Bowl. And if power had gone out in mass in Dallas-Fort Worth during that period of time, there would have been a lot of people really, really suffering. Because those people are not prepared in the South to deal with that kind of cold because they just it doesn't happen that much. And the cities aren't prepared to deal with that level of icing on their streets because they can't afford to have this huge fleet of trucks to deal with it the way they do up north because you can't justify the expense for the once-in-ten-year occurrence. And, and there's just limits to what any we can do. So there's a bigger lesson here than just some people in West Virginia not being prepared. There's a bigger lesson about America not being prepared. And when people ask you why you do what you do, You don't have to say because the end of the world as we know it is coming soon and we're all going to die if we're not prepared to go live in our bunkers. All you have to say is, here's a story on CNN about what happened to people in West Virginia uh, who were not prepared to deal with something as mundane as a couple thunderstorms and a power outage. So let's move on to another one. Okay, this next one comes from Gary, but it actually came from about 40 million of you people. Uh, that's an exaggeration, of course. But I would say probably about 40 uh, people sent me uh, this story. And I think it's uh, it's an interesting one. I've been saying for a long time, the one big reason to grow your own food or buy from local growers that grow high-quality local produce is simply because food tastes better. And one of the things that everybody seems to really like to grow is tomatoes. And one of the big reasons is if you've never had a really great heirloom tomato fresh from the garden, you don't actually know what a tomato tastes like because the tomatoes you buy in the store don't really taste like tomatoes. 
So here's a story out today on uh, treehugger.com, and it says, New study explains why modern tomato tastes like cardboard. Yes, cardboard. That's pretty much what I would say. Summer tomatoes are so filled with promise. The deep, saturated color, the unique, grassy fragrance, the exceptional the expectation of a mouthful of sweet, salty tomato exuberance. But alas, the supermarket tomato after supermarket tomato do little more than disappoint. How can a fruit with such potential so consistently taste like a slightly salty, watery, nothing at best, a mealy globe of cardboard at worst? We know that modern tomatoes are picked green and bred for pest resistance, shipping and shelf life, and that agricultural industry creates produce designed for profit, not flavor. Are these the factors to blame for the tomato's blaze demeanor? Uh, blasé demeanor, I'm sorry. Uh, even when allowed to ripen on the vine and shipped with great care, modern tomatoes are still insepid. Researchers have been looking into this tomato matter and have recently uncovered a genetic cause for the fruit's tedium. The mischievous culprit is a gene mutation discovered accidentally around 70 years ago and quickly latched onto by tomato breeders. In fact, now the mutation has been deliberately bred into nearly all modern tomatoes. Why? It makes them a uniform and seductive deep scarlet red when ripe. Unfortunately for tomato lovers, as reported in the paper published in the Journal of Science, the red-making muta red mutation deactivates an important gene responsible for producing the sugar and aromas that are essential for fragrant and wonderful tomatoes. When researchers turned on the deactivated gene, the fruit had a 20% more sugar and 20 to 30% more carotenoids when ripe, Yet its non-uniform color and greenish pallor suggested that mainstream breeders will not be following suit. So we're stuck with beautiful tomatoes that taste like a mere hint of their former selves. Yet for anybody with a nearby farmer's market or a garden in the back, there is a work workaround for cardboard-flavored tomatoes. Heirloom tomatoes and wild species have not had the tomato ness sucked out of them by selective breeding, so shop for them or grow them yourself. They may not look like the Disney version of Perfect Fruit, But they actually taste like, get this, tomatoes. And there's a, there's a bigger lesson here. You know, most of us know better when we're picking produce, even at a farmer's market or something like that, than to worry about looking for the fruit that's perfectly shaped and uniform in color and texture and things like that. But yet we still find ourselves doing it. Uh, I, would, I would imagine most people find themselves uh, looking at fruit and thinking, well, that one looks better than the other one. And, and again, you really know... It's not really much better, don't you? Do you ever wonder why you gravitate to that? I mean, other than just the marketing, right? It's it's not just marketing this time. It's hardwired into us. It's an interesting thing to think about. And here's why. Plants want to reproduce. And many plants, specifically fruits, would reproduce most effectively by something eating it and then excreting it later. We won't go deep into that because it's not good dinner conversation or anything, but basically a lot of the seeds that you consume in fruits, especially things like tomatoes, pass through your system, end up in your waste, and that waste becomes a compost component, and then the next generation of fruit breeds out, especially with many animals because animals have digestive tracts in many cases that are different than humans and pass things even through in a different way and produce a, a waste that is better suited toward being used as a compost without actually going through a compost product. Uh, so like a lot of animals, like deer and rabbits, crap these little pellets out, and they become hard. And they sit there all hard and dried out until the rains come. And when the rains come, they melt, and the little seeds in them germinate. 
Hmm, what does that sound like? A, a, a Fukuhara seed ball? Right? Uh, the, the seed balls is exactly what it is. So plants will then be consumed based on how attractive the fruit is to the, the, the creature eating it, whether man or beast. So if the most beautiful, bright fruit is the most attractive, then we're hardwired to eat that because it has the highest sugar content, energy content, and things like that. And most of the time, even deer and things like that will go take the choicest morsels first. So it's in our head that that big, bright, beautiful, red, uniform tomato downwired into our circuitry is the one to go for first. So when we look at a whole pile of them, and we start selectively picking out the, the better colored ones, then people that want to sell them to us naturally want to breed tomatoes that are all like that so that we won't you know, not want the tomatoes that are a little odd-shaped or have a little bit of green on them and things like that. But this is where we have to be smarter than our, like, our reptilian brains. And we have to say, it doesn't matter what the tomato like, looks like, it matters what it tastes like. And we need to be doing that in our own backyard because I wonder if it's possible for even some of these heirloom tomatoes, if we follow this practice of selecting seed only from the most uniform long enough, that we will find this mutation uh, through seed saving where we're trying to create diversity. So... I think maybe it's important as we're doing our seed saving that we go ahead and, and selectively save seeds for certain traits and all. But let's not rule out some of the little quirky things as well that may actually be uh, indicators of, of great flavor as well. So just an interesting thought. I'll put a link to the story in today's show notes, as I always do for you. Next up, I'm going to talk a little bit about an email back and forth I had with a guy named Jeff, who sent me basically an email about how wrong it is that I say it's okay to shop at Walmart. And sent me this link on activistpost.com, and it's called, Is Walmart Destroying America? 20 Facts. And the 20 facts about Walmart are basically, they're the biggest and most profitable business, so they're responsible for everything that sucks. That's, that's what I get out of it. Um, the, the CEO of Walmart makes more in a single hour than a full-time Walmart associate makes in an entire year. Yes, and that's how most corporations are. That's how most big corporations are. It is being reported that 80% of all Walmart supplies are in China at this, suppliers are in China at this point, as most retailers have. Um, I don't know that that's actually true if we count things like food as well, though. Uh, there's a lot of local produce that goes into Walmart. Here's my thing. I don't think Walmart is like a bunch of really great people at the top that are wonderful, that care about me and you and, and want us all to sing Kumbaya and are working really hard to to, to, to make America a better place. I, I'm not naive. I, I don't think that they're really great. I don't think that Walmart, in, a, in many ways, has been good for America. I think that Walmart has damaged a lot of small towns, uh, a lot of small businesses and things like that. I think that's all perfectly true and perfectly valid. So why do I think it's okay to shop there? Because... I, I, it's not that I think it's okay to do business with Walmart. It's that I think that if you're going to say, let's go back to dealing with only local suppliers and things like that, and I'm going to try to like never buy anything from a mass-produced environment if I can, and I'm only going to do it when I have no other choice, fine, fine. But to single out Walmart is like they're the devil, but Kmart's okay. Um, Kroger's okay with the food. Albertsons, uh, Brookshire's. Right, all, all these, these these food sellers, or Sears and Roebuck, or any of these big corporations, J.C. Penney, right, Kohl's, all of these big resellers, uh, sporting goods stores like Dick's and Academy and things like that, uh, Costco, uh, which would be uh, Walmart's chief competitor in the the discount uh, club space, the competing mostly with their Sam's Club operation, 
Um, do any of these companies do things better than Walmart? Some of them do. Some of them don't. Uh, Costco pays its employees better and has better benefits and uh, seems to do a better job of taking care of their employees and offering them advancement. But Walmart actually does okay with that as well. Another thing I look at, when I walk through a Walmart in some cities, I see people working in there that if Walmart wouldn't give them a job, nobody would give these people a job. The only reason they're not on welfare is because Walmart gave them a job. They're better off working at Walmart than not working at all. So if you wanted to say, well, I want to organize a, a boycott where we just don't buy from big companies, and we're just not going to buy from big companies unless there's no other way. If we need something and nobody else has it, but if there's anybody that has it locally, small business, whatever, I'd say, okay, maybe. Maybe. Because it kind of ignores the reality of the entire distribution system in America today. And the local retailer that's got one store is probably getting many of his things for the same supplier as Walmart is. Right? So there's certain things we just don't make in this country anymore. Or we don't make in sufficient quantity to meet demand in this country anymore. So dealing locally, buying locally, dealing with small-time business people, that makes sense. But why, why vilify Walmart over, let's say, somebody like J.P. Morgan Chase? Okay, who's really doing more harm to the world? Walmart, right? Or J.P. Morgan Chase? Walmart... <laughs> employs more people in this country than any other company. Walmart does provide health insurance for their, their people. It's not great, but it's better than what a lot of other people have. Walmart does have advancement opportunities. Walmart has a stock program that if an employee uh, participates in it, I guarantee you it's going to do better for them unless the entire economy crumbles around and, and, and Walmart's gone. It's going to do more for them than Social Security is. Nobody holds a gun to anybody's head and makes them go to Walmart. Nobody holds a gun to anybody's head and makes them shop at Walmart. So when I look at Walmart, I see Big Business America. But I don't see them as any different than anybody else. And this person's eventual response to me was the reason we target them is they're the biggest. S really? So the person that's the most successful is the one that you target. Just because they're the most successful. See, and I think that this is very short-sighted. I actually think that if you want to use Walmart and boycott in the same sentence, that it's better to go shop at Walmart and boycott certain, certain things they, set, they sell, and let the local management know you won't buy it anymore. When you look at something like the pink slime thing, where 20% of our ground meat in this country, you know, 99% of the time or better, when you bought packaged ground meat in this country, 20% of it was pink slime, which was all this ammonium, you know, ammonia-drenched garbage crap that they told us was okay and good for us. Well, what eventually got rid of it? Did the government get rid of it? No. Public awareness. People became aware of it. And people started not buying it at stores all over America, grocery stores. They'd go in, and which, which, which of your ground beef is the non-pink slime ground beef? And the answer was usually, well, we, we don't know. Okay, I'm not buying any of it. Or I'm going to go get this big old hunk of chuck roast, this cheap chuck roast, and I'm going to take it to your deli and I'm going to have them grind that for me because it's the only way I know I'm not getting pink slime in my ground meat. And all of a sudden these stores just started going, you know what, we're not going to, so that they could start answering the question with, we don't do that here. One of the last holdouts was Walmart. But when Walmart caved on it and decided they're not going to carry it because their customers didn't want it anymore, it put the whole thing out of business. The, 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 the plants, there were only a few of them that were making this crap, shut down. So what that means is if you really have a problem with something, then a way to get it out of our system is to take the biggest companies that resell it and start not buying it from them 
and explaining to store management that you don't want to buy it from them and tell them what you do want to buy. You carry this. I would prefer to purchase this. If you'll put this on the shelf, I'll buy it. I'll never buy that. And tell your friends and your neighbors and your Facebook friends and your Twitter followers, don't buy this crap because. And when you go to your local distributor, whether it's Walmart or anybody else, tell them, I don't want this, I want that. And pick one item at a time and start picking it apart that way and use the power of these mega corporations through consumer choice and, and, and consumer uh, information to change what's available. Now that is going to be far more effective to pick one or two items at a time like we did with Pink Slime. And I don't mean we like us, but I mean like the country did. Jamie Oliver really is the guy, a British guy, that brought that to the attention of America. And when enough people got behind it, enough people became aware of it, enough news stories got out about it, even the mighty Walmart took it off the shelf. Now, getting that shit out of our ground beef has done more for this country's health than closing every single Walmart store on the planet would. And that was done through that chain rather than trying to pull that chain apart. So if you don't like something these companies are doing, work on having the practice change, not making the company go away. Because if we just magically suppress Walmart and they decline to half their size, millions of Americans would lose jobs. Not just in Walmart, but people that support it. And people like, well, other people would come in and fill the vacuum. You think it's going to get filled by Joe's Hardware and Sam's Groceries? Uh-uh, buddy. It ain't going to happen. right? All that's going to happen is the largest competitors are going to come up and occupy the space. Because the entire system is built around cheap food. You have to change the people before changing the companies will make any difference whatsoever. So the best thing to work on is, again, one item at a time. I also want to say this. There's a grocery store one mile up the road from me, and there's a Walmart store one mile down the road from me. And you would think it's a family-owned grocery store right outside of Hot Springs Village. And I went up there the other day to get some limes because Walmart down here was out of limes. So I went up there and I went through their meat section. And I thought to myself, because I'd had this conversation, I can go down to Walmart and I can buy all-natural chicken. It's not organic, all-natural chicken, but it's cage-free raised. And the name of the family, because this is branded chicken, I can't remember what it's called now, but it's in a green and white package. And when you open it up, it doesn't stink like Tyson and Purdue chicken. The flesh is, flesh is a lot more dense the way that pastured poultry is. It's cleaner. And even though it's a single brand, each chicken has the name of the family. And you can go look up the name of the family and find their farm online to see who they are. Kind of sounds like something we've talked about, right? I could get that chicken at Walmart. All I could get up at this place was Purdue and Tyson. Okay, so Walmart gave me a natural choice where the mom and pop operation didn't. There was a lot more organic produce on the shelves in Walmart than there was at the mom and pop grocery store. There was almost no organic produce up there. There were Arkansas watermelons. They were very proud of the fact that they were Arkansas watermelons. But guess what? They didn't make me any. They didn't give me any information about whether they were organic or not. Where I could go down to Walmart and I could get either organic or conventional watermelon. I pay a premium for the organic, but at least it was available. So the things that I'm concerned with with my health, like I use. Creamer in my coffee. I use dairy, uh, you know, just heavy cream in my coffee. And I can buy organic cream from Walmart. Check this little grocery store up here. No organic cream. Organic milk, but no organic cream, no organic half and half. So I have, I can make better health choices there. So again, just taking that away won't fix our problem. 
Again, we have to focus on things like what are they selling that they shouldn't be selling? What are people consuming there that they shouldn't be consuming? And then pick one thing and change the people, not the company selling you the stuff. Right? The company selling you stuff isn't the problem. It, 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 it's as asinine as thinking, well, if we just went out and arrested every guy dealing drugs on the street tomorrow, next month nobody would be using drugs. What would happen? New drug dealers would just show up. The vacuum would be filled. Get rid of Walmart without changing the people? It's pointless. And again, who does more harm? And I'm going to give you a couple different choices, all with Walmart as one of them. Walmart, J.P. Morgan Chase. Okay? Walmart, Bank of America. Walmart, Monsanto. Walmart, Pfizer. Alright? Come on. Walmart or Merck, pharmaceutical. Walmart or Bear, that does both pharmaceutical and ag, ag chemical. And GMO. Walmart or Conagra. You tell me out of every one of those, isn't Walmart less damaging than all of those other companies? So when I see the Walmart bashing, I'm like, you know, you're just missing the point. I just wanted to talk about that because I know occasionally I talk about, hey, I went by Walmart and picked this up. right? Well, if Joe Blow sets up Joe Blow's Emporium and I can get that stuff from him, I'm happy to do business with him. But until he's there... I'm going to buy what I need from the people that have it. And if I happen to get great pricing, great service out of that, and more choice, so much the better. And that's successful business. And this is what people don't get. Just because somebody's successful doesn't mean they're a crook. Okay? The, the, the entire concept of America is anybody can build a business, it's supposed to be anyway, as big and powerful as they want, as long as they don't prevent other people from operating. As far as I know, Walmart doesn't get in the way of somebody else opening up a store. There's a lot of hurdles, there's a lot of regulation, but most of that stuff revolves around food and imports and stuff like that, that the people that are way bigger, the financiers, are the ones that are behind that crap. So, there you go, my thoughts on Walmart and any concept of boycotting them, and I'll post a link to these 20 you know, horrible facts about Walmart that tell you things like you know, they're really successful and employ a lot of people and their CEO makes a lot of money and uh, they have a huge, they, have, they would have the 23rd largest GDP in the world. That sounds like an American success story to me. Again, I'm not saying they're angels, I'm just saying that doesn't make them villains either. What if I told you the real middle class tax rate was 75%? Uh, Rich sent me this article from Zero Hedge, a guest post on Zero Hedge by Tyler Durden, and it's called The Real World Middle Class Tax Rate is 75%. Let me read a little bit of it to you. Uh, the real world middle class rate, 75%. If we include all taxes, the real world tax rate is much higher than official income tax rate. For those Americans earning between $34,500 and $106,000, the real world middle class tax burden in high locales is 15 plus 25 plus 5 plus 15 plus 15 equals 75. Yes, 75 percent. Before you start listing innumerable caveats uh, and quibbles raised by any discussion of taxes, please hear me out first. Let's start by defining taxes as any, any fee that is mandated by law or legal necessity. In other words, taxes are what is not optional. If we include all taxes, the real-world tax rate is much higher than the official income tax rate. These other taxes vary from nation to nation. France, for example, has a television tax. It's mandatory since virtually every household has a TV. This operates as a universal tax. The argument there that it is optional is suspicious. Uh, in every other advanced democracy, basic universal health care is paid by tax revenues. In the U.S., health care insurance is, quote, optional, but this too is specious because 
in the real world, private health care insurance is, is mandatory because the alternative of having zero insurance places your entire net worth and income at risk to catastrophic loss. Having no health care insurance only makes sense if you have no real assets and low income. At that point, your care will be provided by the taxpayer-funded Medicaid program, which is the default universal care program of the United States. Uh, let me add, before I continue on with his reasoning here, that health care is no longer optional because it's now mandated as a tax. So you're going to pay either the mandate or you're going to buy your health insurance. So let me go back to what he was saying. For this reason, I consider the cost of private health care insurance in the U.S. the equivalent of a tax. We pay over one hundred. We pay over twelve thousand annually for bare bone health care insurance, which amounts to about fifteen percent of our gross income. Some countries pay for health care with a fifteen percent tax. Here we pay the fifteen percent directly. There's no difference except the process of collecting the fifteen percent. The only real difference is that health care costs twice as much per person in the U.S. because the system is operated by cartels whose business model is fraud, opaque pricing, and the elimination of competition via central state regulation. Yes, the super wealthy can absorb a $150,000 hospital bill, but the 99.9% can't. Uh, thus, any claim health insurance is optional is specious. Next, he says, property tax is mandatory. Some countries have no property tax. Others do. Once again, only counting social insurance and income taxes as the official tax, tax rate is horrendously misleading. For countries without property taxes, the revenues are collected as a value-added taxes or VAT or higher income taxes. One way or another, the services paid by property taxes in the U.S. are paid by other tax schemes in countries without property taxes. So property taxes must be included in any accounting of total taxes paid. Many of us who ride in states, reside in states such as Illinois, New York, New Jersey, and California pay 12000 or more annually in property taxes. That's about 15% of our household income. And let me say something to you. If you live somewhere where you pay $12,000 a year in property taxes for an average home, that's because you're stupid. Leave where you're at. Let the Federal Republic work. Go away from these places. Get out of these places. If you are paying $1,000 a month to live in your own house, you are being victimized and you are allowing it to happen. Move. Do not pay $12,000 a year in property taxes. That just kind of hit me the wrong way there. Let me go back uh, to it, though. Renters pay property taxes indirectly, indirectly, but to the degree that the rents would be lower if property taxes were eliminated and the tax burden shifted to a VAT. Then renters pay the tax just like property owners. Renters pay as much property taxes as, as, as property owners because no person renting you a property is paying the tax for you. It's built into the rent. Right, so you're paying the tax through them. Not you're not avoiding anything. So that doesn't even matter. Employees looking at paycheck stubs do not see the entire tax paid on their labor. Employees may wonder why their net pay has stagnated for decades. One reason is the total compensation cost of employees has risen substantially. To give but one example of many, Social Security taxes were once a modest 3% paid by the employee and 3% paid by the employer for a total of 6% of your wage. Now the total for Social Security, 12.4%. So, again, if I hire you, I pay 6.2 and you pay 6.2. And, and that's a temporary cut, by the way. It's going to go back up. And Medicaid's 2.9%. So that's 15.3%. And this is what employees don't get. I'm going to break away from the article for a second here. Employees think, well, if my employer pays half of my Social Security, why should I care? Because if he wasn't paying half of your Social Security, he could pay it to you and your wage, and he would. Let me tell you something about running a business. Getting good people is one of the hardest things a business owner has to do or a manager has to do for his department. You'll pay whatever you can afford to pay and still be profitable to get the best people you can get. And you'll do it over and over and over again. When you put 15% burden on that employee, that's that's 15% I can't give the employee. That, that's straight up. Now, self-employed people are aware of this. 
Self-employed people pay 15.3% as a self-employment tax. So I pay 15.3% of my income as a self-employment tax before I even pay income tax. So this guy's dead on about that. This is a real-world tax burden of Social Security and Medicare. 15.3% Social Security and Medicare tax starts with $1 of net income. The Social Security tax goes way up, goes away above around $106,000 in income. The Medicare tax does not. So yes, once you go over $106,000, you actually get to stop paying into the Ponzi scheme that we'll never collect on if we're in our 40s or younger. Yes, that's, that's our out to make at least $106,000. Most employees do not know how much health care insurance tax is paid by their employer. To the degree that wages would rise if health care tax was not paid by employers, then employees pay for this tax indirectly. To act like it isn't mandatory part of compensation costs is both specious and misleading. So you can read the rest if you want to. But his point is that when we look at all of this stuff, that people are probably paying somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 75% in taxes. And I think that's, a, that's an accurate assessment. So I said uh, about a week ago that if you put me in charge of the federal government, And you said, well, how are you going to conduct the business of the federal government and not tax people? And the answer is, well, you can't. And there are certain things the federal government needs to do. And that I believe that a 10% sales tax and then the elimination of all federal taxes. Okay, let me explain what I mean by all federal taxes. No federal gas tax. Okay, no Social Security, no Medicare, no Medicaid. None of it. The federal government gets a 10% sales tax right uh, on the final sale of an item to the end user. So if I'm a reseller and I buy it, And I'm going to sell it to you. I don't pay sales tax. You do. right? And if I buy four parts and put them together to make a product, I don't pay sales tax on them if I'm a reseller because I resell the final product and only then is the tax assessed. Okay, That would be a lot less than 75%, wouldn't it? Now, what about property taxes and state sales tax? That's for the states to sort out. But imagine what would happen if, let's say, the state burden on this 50% 60% is probably more accurate because this guy's a little high at 75%. Let's say 60%. Let's say the federal imposed burden of that 60% is about 40%. So if we had a 10% federal sales tax only on money spent, even, even if we give them the benefit of the doubt, what if we put 30% more earnings into the hands of the people doing the work? 30% more earnings. What would that be worth to you? Now, people would say, well, this is tough on the people that don't make a lot of money and aren't paying any taxes. No, it's not. It's fair. You know, that's the word that nobody really wants to talk about what it is. Fair. Fair is not because you suck, I have to pay more. Fair is not because you're not capable of doing a good job and getting a promotion that I have to pay more taxes than you. That's not fair. Fair is not, not only do I pay more taxes because I made more, but I pay them at a higher rate while you pay none. Nothing about that's fair. Does that mean the person not paying any income taxes is the problem? No. That's your class warfare bullshit. That's your class warfare bullshit. The system that set it up that way is the problem. The person down there at the bottom hates you and, and resents you the same way many of us resent them. Because you're like, well, I work really hard for what I have. Why should I give it to you? And they're sitting down there going, I can't get ahead. You have so much. Why shouldn't you pay more? Because they want you fighting each other. The system is the problem. See, a 10% federal sales tax rate would go right into pricing models. And then even the people down at the bottom that say it's going to hurt them would get out ahead because they would stop having money held up and they would be able to actually get paid more. right? So the guy that says, well, I only make $10 an hour. Okay, well, how'd you like a $3 an hour raise? Because it wouldn't happen overnight, 
But if we put the system I talked about in place, that's what would happen to people in that price range. They would make about a $3 an hour raise within a few months. The good ones would. Because the employer would be so unencumbered by all this crap. And also think about, the, think about how much cost savings. How much cost savings is there if an employer just simply paid the employee? That's all I had to do. You worked X hours where your salary is, here's your check, here's your money, go on and about your life and, and thank you for your work. Instead of federal withholding tax, social security, all this government bureaucracy and regulation, most companies either have huge payroll departments to, to, comp, you know, to contend with all this crap, or they use a payroll services company. That's a huge expense. As a business owner, again, I'm telling you, most employees have no idea how expensive that is. And I will pay a good employee as much as I can afford to pay them. And that means if you take the cost associated with employing the person that doesn't go to them away from me, I can take that same cost and put it into their salary. And I'll do it. And you want to know why I'll do it? Do you think it's because I love people and I love flowers and I want all the children to have flowers and if the people have more money, they can give flowers to orphans? No. It's because I'm a greedy capitalist and I want to make lots of money. And that means I need the best people I can get. And if you take my competitors and tell them the same thing you've just told me, all that cost is gone, I can only keep it for so long before somebody in my sector makes the first move to raise wages. And as soon as they do, they attract the best talent. And then what do I have to do? I have to do the same thing. If you look... You can find 10 companies that are vastly different in their operational structure, but if they're in the same sector and about the same size, they pay their people very close to the same wage. And the most successful ones usually pay the highest wage. right? And if you, again, if you alter the cost structure for those companies, they're not just all going to keep the money. They're going to invest the money in retaining and attracting talent. So this is an interesting way to look at things, and it's it's a good case for moving to a more libertarian model. And people said, well, Jack, why don't we just get away with all taxes and not have any federal tax at all? One guy said, you're very generous with my money at 10%. Well, there's a fair tax proposal that works out at 33%. So I'm just cutting theirs in, in thirds and saying 10% is enough. If you can't afford it with a 10% sales tax rate, either A, make the economy better so you have more money, or B, you don't do it. And I don't think there's that much the federal government needs to be doing that a 10% sales tax wouldn't provide for. It probably could be fine, but we would have a decoupling. Anyway, the economy's screwed anyway, as I've told you, and uh, it's all pipe dream anyway. But I think that would be a much better way to run a country. Just my thoughts. Let's take another one. This is actually going to be two articles. I'm going to read you one that I think most people are going to like that are in this audience. And then I'm going to read you a story from another state that in some ways is very, very similar. And I think, a, not most, but a lot of people that like this won't like the other one. And then I want to talk about the way that something called states' rights can be a knife that cuts in both directions. Here we go. This is in the Arizona Sun, I believe. Yeah, Arizona Daily Sun. Com. Initiative would let voters overrule federal law. When I first heard about this, it sounded like individuals could just tell a federal agent, screw off, I'm not going to comply because I don't have to. Uh, no, this is a much more organized thing, and it makes sense. Motor, voters, motors, <laughs> voters could get a right to overrule federal laws and mandates under terms of an initiative filed on Thursday. The Arizona Constitution already says federal constitution is the supreme law of the land. This measure, if approved in November, would add language saying the federal document may not be violated by any government, including the federal government. More to the point, it would allow Arizonans, quote, to reject any federal action they deem violates the United States Constitution. 
This could occur through a vote in the state house and senate with the consent of the governor. But that also could occur through a popular vote on a ballot measure, effectively allowing voters to decide which federal laws they feel infringe upon Arizona's rights as a sovereign state. So if this initiative gets put in place, then what would be able to happen is just the state house and state senate could under this law stand up and tell the federal government what you've done here we as a state deem is unconstitutional. You will not subject our, our citizens of our state to it. We're not going to participate. Go screw. Big middle finger extended highly by the House and Senate of the state of Arizona. So they're going to pass a law that says they can do this. Um, I got a little message for all states out there. You don't need a law that says you can do that. Under your existing constitutions and under the federal constitution, that's exactly what you're supposed to be doing there, folks. That's exact. So if you want to pass a measure to empower the current you know, group of cowards that are elected officials at all levels that won't stand up so they can feel the law lets them stand up and do what they're already constitutionally supposed to do, great. Let me, let me go on. Organizer Jack Billis said he turned in more than 320,000 signatures. The next step will be for the Secretary of State to determine after screening the petitions if there's at least 259,213 valid names on the forms to allow the measure to go to the ballot. So, uh, one thing I skipped over there real quick. It also would, if this thing passes, enable the, this is where they need the law, I guess. The citizens could do this ballot initiative for federal constitutional validity. So if the state house and state senate don't want to stand up and do it, the citizens then could use the, the balloting or the, you know, get the measures on the ballot using signatures and then get it into an election, get it voted on by the citizens. And then they, the, the citizens are saying to the state, Hey guys, go stand up to the feds. We are now mandated by your citizenry. This, this is states rights. This is exactly how a federal republic is supposed to work. And Arizona's on the right track. Um, let me tell you there's some other stuff here. Uh, the flagship example, he said, is the Federal Affordable Care Act. He said there's nothing in the U.S. Constitution which gives federal government the power to enact a national health care plan. I agree, by the way. Blittis acknowledged the U.S. Supreme Court faced it with exactly that question, ruled to the contrary. Quote, I believe the Supreme Court got it completely wrong. He said, in fact, Blittis uh, argued the ability of a nation's high court to interpret and invalidate federal laws itself is not part of the U.S. Constitution, but was claimed by the court in 1803. Quote, the only portion of the government that has unlimited powers are the state governments and the people themselves, he said. Blittis said that under, this met, under his measure, Arizona could simply refuse to participate, though it would do so at the risk of losing federal dollars. States, states, listen to me. All states, all state, you're not losing anything when you lose federal dollars. You think you are, but you're not. You know, you really do. You think you are, but you're not. If you didn't participate in their shit, you wouldn't have to spend that money and send it to them, and then you could keep that money and tell them to take their federal dollars and shove them up their collective asses. Okay? States need to start running their own shops again, and this is one way to do it. Uh, and he, th this is a great statement by this Blittis guy. The only portion of the government that has unlimited powers are the state governments and the people themselves. The Constitution, the federal Constitution, is designed to be a check on state power, right? Not an allotment of power. So the states can basically do anything they want as long as it doesn't violate the federal Constitution. But the state should have unlimited power in telling the federal government that they don't believe that what's going on is constitutional and run their state their way and compete in the marketplace of ideas. This makes perfect sense. And that is very simply summed up. And I just don't understand how anybody can, can, can not understand this simple language. It's a single damn sentence. 
The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. I just want everybody to understand what that means, so that we can all stop arguing about it. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution. So the powers not given to the federal government by the federal Constitution. Anything the Constitution doesn't say you can do is, okay, that's what that is. If it doesn't say you can do it, you can't. That's that's what that's basically saying. Nor prohibited by it to the states. This is an important piece of the amendment that gets left out. In other words, what it says is the states can do anything they like unless it's prohibited. This means Arizona can stand up and tell the federal government, go screw, this is unconstitutional, and fight it out uh, in the courts or fight it out on the field if they have to. I mean, it's up to them how they want to do it. That's how the system was set up. But if the federal constitution says it cannot be done to people, the states don't have unlimited power there. So the state of Arizona can't pass a law that says nobody's allowed to have free speech anymore because it's federally protected. It's a check against the states. So nor prohibited to the states are reserved to the states. So if it's not given to the federal government and not prohibited to the state, It's reserved for the state, respectively, or to the people. So if it doesn't, so the so that means the hierarchy in a constitutional republic is citizen, state, federal government, not federal government, state, citizen. And that was to be completely clear. That's why they put the Tenth Amendment there. And I think it really it behooves us to read the Ninth Amendment in understanding the Tenth. It's also a very, very simple, single sentence. It's not hard to understand. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Uh, a lot of people hear that and kind of glass over. What it says is, just because the Constitution doesn't say that citizens have a right to something, doesn't mean that they don't have a right to it. it and it will not be used to deny or disparage others retained by the people. In other words, when the, when the founders got together and did the first ten amendments, the Bill of Rights, There were people that said, we better not do this. Because if we do this, anything we don't put in there, that we forget to put in there, that we don't think of today, or changes tomorrow, the federal government will say, oh, see, you don't have these rights. So to make sure that didn't happen, they put in the Ninth Amendment and said, just because it doesn't say that people have this freedom, doesn't mean that they don't have this freedom. Just because it doesn't say the government can't interfere, doesn't mean the government can't interfere. You can't use the fact that it's not in there to infringe on the rights of the people. But the tenth clarifies that if it's not in there for the government, then they don't have the right. So it's very simple. The people are the ones with unlimited power. And the government are the ones with a check on their power in all directions. States checking on the feds. Feds checking against the, the, the states. House again, you know, fed, House checking the Senate. The House and Senate together effectively checking the president. The court checking. See, it's all a system of checks and balances. That's how it was set up and designed to be with the ultimate power retained by the individual states and the people. Because if the states do something stupid in a federal uh, constitutional republic, it's very easy to move from New Jersey to Texas. And if New Jersey's stupid long enough, they lose their best people to competing states. So that's the final check. People that vote with their feet, like the Free State Project. See how simple this all is? So this all sounds good. And it sounds like something that most people that probably listen to this show think makes sense. You know, standing up by the states, people being the ultimate center of power, etc. What you have to understand about states', states rights is they can go both directions. They can also lead to things that you might not want, like this one. 
California Senate passes anti-Arizona immigration bill. Sacramento, Reuters. The California Senate passed a bill on Thursday that seeks to shield illegal immigrants from status checks by local police and challenges Republican-backed immigration crackdowns in Arizona and other states. The Democrat-led state Senate would vote 21 to 13 to approve the California Trust Act, dubbed by supporters as the anti-Arizona bill. It blocks local police from referring a detainee to immigration officials for deportation unless that person has been convicted of a violent or serious felony. Um, you know, <laughs> that means that a, a person would be able to be in the state of uh, California illegally, because they're in the country illegally, commit a felony, but if it was a non-violent fe- or not deemed to be a serious felony, I'm not sure what felonies are not serious, that law enforcement in California would be forbidden, forbidden to contact immigration and say, we have this guy here illegally. <laughs> this just doesn't make any sense at all. But does California as a state have a right to do that? Does California as a state have a right to do that? In many ways, I would have to say, yes, they do. They, they do. Especially if the people of California decide that's what they want to do. But... <laughs> You're actually forbidding law enforcement officers from enforcing the law at that point. You're effectively nullifying the law. And that's the two-edged sword of states' rights. That if you're going to say that a state has a right to do something you're in favor of, you're also saying the state has a right to do something you're not in favor of if its citizens and its, its government collectively decide to act that way. So then the question becomes, when is the federal government constitutionally compelled to intervene? Just because they don't agree? Or because of what? When the rights of its citizens that are constitutionally protected are being trampled on. So does California forbidding a law enforcement officer who has arrested somebody for a crime sufficient to be put in jail and or fined, incarcerated, held at the expense of the taxpayers, right, and then released on probation or parole and or with fines or whatever, forbidden from taking that, Im- that, Im- that person's immigration status and simply notifying federal authorities, hey, this guy's here if you want him. That's, that's one of those knife edges. That's not quite as easy to decide as you, as you would like to think that it is. Now, would the federal government be within its rights if it actually got off its ass and started to enforce the borders and enforce immigration law to come into California and go, you don't have to turn them over if you don't want to. We're going to start looking for them and picking them up, and you're not going to stop us. They're not citizens of your state, because to be a citizen of your state, they have to first be a citizen of the republic, so they're not protected under your state's charters. You don't get to do that. I think the federal government would be right in doing that. I wouldn't know if they would be, it was the correct decision. Let me, let me clarify. I'm not making any opinion statements here. I'm trying to do something that's very difficult for most of us to do. Honest intellectual analysis of the situation devoid of our personal opinions. Not is it right for them, but would they be within the Constitution and rightfully acting legally? And I think they would. They're not going to do it, so it's not really worth debating, but it would be legally acceptable to do. You cannot say that a person who is a Guatemalan citizen living in California can be protected from deportation by federal authorities by California law. Because it's the federal government's responsibility to enforce the borders and immigration law, right? If it wasn't, 
then you would have had, you would have had to allow the, the Arizona bill to stand. If it's not, if it's not, so because this is where you start to tie this stuff together. It's important we start thinking this way, folks. Really not analyzing this. Let's say that you say that California is allowed to do this. And they would also be allowed to tell the federal government, you can't come take these people out of our state. That that's a state rights issue. Well, then fine. Then there would not be nothing to stop Texas from having state-level deportation. So if California could intervene with federal enforcement, then Texas could do the job of federal enforcement and say you're deported from Texas. Right? Now, I don't think those are constitutional either one, right? But that's, if one is, then the other is. And this is the two-edged sword of a lot of things. And it's why when we have these higher level discussions, we stop calling each other names. We, for a moment, you know, in, once we make these determinations, then we can debate the politics. But let's first de debate the constitutionality, the legality of the situation. Should they even be doing this? Are they permitted to do this? And can we afford it? Let's have that discussion first. And when we do that, we have to take our emotions and feelings out of it. Because it's very natural if you're opposed to it to say they can't, or if you're for it to say they can. But if we do that blindly, then we have to take our own medicine when it comes back around the other side, when maybe none of the things should have happened. I'm just saying, this is an opportunity for America right now to start reigning in our government. And One of the last questions of the day I'm going to get into why it's important that we start to think this way now. Because some really tough times are coming. And if we're going to stave off additional tyranny, we're going to have to resort to the only thing we have left. Our Constitution of the United States of America and the constitutions of the representative states and the supreme right of the people in any place that the state does not have the explicit power by its own constitution, the federal government doesn't have the explicit power by its constitution, Right, or there's not a mandate for the federal government to represent the people because the rights are being infringed upon. That's what we need to resort to. And again, you'll see why in just a bit. But this is an interesting idea, and I'd like people to be able to discuss this with each other in the comment section on the blog without being assholes to each other. Just discuss the mechanics. Leave out the right and wrong of the consequences for a moment. Not that they're not important, But can we discuss this as a community at a pure legal level? And what can we learn from it? About each other, about our rights as citizens, about our duties as citizens, about our rights as citizens of states, and about our rights as citizens of the United States of America. That's something that we've become intellectually dead on, and it's time to resurrect it. And that's why I think a lot of these movements, like the Occupy movement and the Tea Party movement, are going to get nothing really accomplished from a standpoint of who gets elected or what directly changes. But if we can at least start having these kinds of conversations, maybe we can bring life back to the intellectually dead society and start holding people accountable. Even when we don't agree on what should be done, at least we can agree upon what legally can and cannot be done. That would be a good step in the right direction to restoring the republic. So I got this comment in the blog from Lisa, and Lisa says, RT's capital account used the black hole imagery on the program today. Stephen King of, uh, on the Minsky singularity and the debt black holes event horizon. This was on, I think, let me see right here. I'm looking for the date on it. This looks like July 7th. Okay, so July 7th, so two days ago. 
Um, let me remind you guys that didn't listen to the show last week that on July 3rd, I did a show called The Economic Collapse That Is In Progress. And what I said in the show notes is the lesson of how a black hole consumes a planetary body. And I talked about the monetary event horizon. So much so that one of our listeners put together a graphic of Ben Bernanke being sucked into a black hole with a bunch of money on fire. And he was had his hands up like, you know, what? You know, that type of thing where you just kind of shrug your shoulders, what? And he says, meh. Like, that's a thing a lot of internet shorthand things use. Like, it's like, eh, whatever. Meh. M-E-H. And then meh stood for monetary event horizon. Right? So, so clearly, I, I, this is, this is my imagery, my concept. I brought this out. I had never heard it anywhere before. A few days later, it's on Russia Today. And this guy, Steve Keen, whoever he is, uh, is talking about the Minsky singularity and the monetary event horizon of debt. Uh, I feel ripped off. I don't know if I got ripped off. This guy, I mean, it's such a, a logical connection for me. My ego's not that big, but it's a little bit suspicious. And I'll put a link in today's show notes to that story so you can listen to the story uh, and read the article that accompanies it. But it's uh, it's interesting that either I was ripped off or this gentleman and I think very, very similar And if it's that we're both thinking very, very similar, maybe there's something to what we're saying. So I'll provide that to you. I just wanted to, to note that since somebody pointed it out in the blog comments. On the note of economic problems and cities and states and counties going bankrupt and people thinking that I'm crazy and it's just not as bad as I say and there's, there's hope and change still coming if we just wait long enough. Um, let me read this to you off of NPR. The city of Scranton, Pennsylvania sent out paychecks to its employees Friday like it does every two weeks. But this time the checks were much smaller than usual. Mayor Chris Doherty Doherty, has reduced everyone's pay, including his own, to the state's minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. Doherty says the city's run out of money. Scranton has had financial troubles for a couple of decades. Decades? I think it's actually been a lot longer than that. The town has been losing population since the end of World War II. Like I said, that's more than a couple of decades. That's like 60, 60, 70 years now, right? But the budget problems became more serious in recent months as the mayor of the, and the city uh, council fought over how to balance the budget. Dotry wants to raise taxes to fill the $16.8 million gap. Because it's not like we could stop spending money that we don't have, right? The city council wants to take a different approach and borrow money. City council members did not respond to NPR's request to discuss the dispute. I want you to get this. I want you to understand what I mean when I say that this problem cannot be fixed with the current mindset in government. There, there's a $16.8 million gap. Okay. Now, you and I, if we had a $16,000 gap in our expenses and our income, might try to increase our, our income. Okay, we if we're not really educated about finance yet, we might borrow some money, but we're not going to just like make sixteen grand pop out of thin air because realistically we can't do that, and we're probably not going to borrow the money because we can't pay it already. So we're not going to fix the problem. So intrinsically, we know this, and if we do either of the you know if we try to do it through borrowing, we're going to end up bankrupt. So either we're going to end up bankrupt or we're going to not go into bankruptcy. What we're actually going to do, because we live in a real freaking world, unlike these politicians and idiots is we're going to do what? We're going to figure out how to cut as much as we can out and then try to compensate for whatever we can't absolutely cut. Like, we might have to pay our mortgage, so that doesn't get cut. But maybe we stop buying lattes. Whatever it is, we're going to try to lean out as much as we can. Not the government. 
Okay, look at, look at the two solutions here. This is, this is so critical to understand the mindset of the people running our cities, our counties, our states, and our federal government. The, the argument is, do we tax the people further or do we borrow the money? Not, how do we cut expenses? Nobody's arguing. Do we, so let me go back to the article now. Quote, I'm trying to do the best I can with the limited amount of funds that I have, Dotri said. I want the employees to get paid. Our people work hard. Our police and fire. I just don't have enough money, and I can't print it in the basement. Thank God. Right? But the federal government can print it in their basement. <laughs> After paying workers on Friday, the city only had $5,000 in the bank. The city of Scranton, Pennsylvania, on Friday, after paying its workforce minimum freaking wage, only had $5,000 in the bank. The city of Scranton had five grand in the bank. More money flowed into city accounts that day. They were probably out writing tickets, by the way. But it was still not enough to pay the $1 million the city owes to its nearly 400 employees. Scranton's public workers received a few days' warning that this was coming. John Judge, a firefighter and president of the International Association of Firefighters, Local 60, hmm, sounds like a union, typically receives about $1,500 every two weeks after deductions. So he's not making a ton of money. That's $1,500, that's what, three grand a month? After deductions, now that's probably got healthcare and stuff in it, but uh, you know he's making a really a living wage barely uh, after deductions. On Friday, his check was less than six hundred dollars before deductions, so he went from fifteen hundred take home to six hundred gross. "Quote: Don't know how I'm going to pay the bills at home. I may be able to stave it off for a little while." End quote. Judge says. Uh, quote, the kids aren't going to be able to do certain activities this summer. Maybe we're not going to be able to go on vacation, end quote. So, <laughs> here it is. Here, I mean, this is the whole thing explained in a couple paragraphs. They, they cut the firefighter's salary. The first thing he says is, I may be able to hold on for a bit, but we're probably not going to be going on vacation, and we're going to have to cut the kids' activities out. And you know he's thinking anything else he can cut. So you cut his income, and he can't meet his expenses. The first thing he does is cut his expenses. The first thing the government does is decide, do we solve the problem through greater tax, or do we solve the problem through greater borrowing? This is why we're screwed. You can read the rest of the article if you want to, but let me just put it to you this way. The city of Scranton, Pennsylvania, just paid their entire workforce minimum wage, and even with doing that to cut the, the, cut the, the bills as much as they can, and that's more than anybody can. You can't do that sustainably. You can't permanently pay an entire city workforce minimum wage. Even doing that, they went down to $5,000 in the bank on Friday afternoon. So when I tell you that cities and counties and states are on the verge of bankruptcy, I'm not kidding, folks. And you got to start thinking about this. What happens when the, the day of reckoning comes? Because the cities, the counties, and the states can't print money in the basement. And this starts happening all over the place. Maybe not even minimum wage. This is a reason to prepare. What happens when these people start getting paid 50% of what they were being paid before? Some of these, some places, this guy would have been bringing home $1,500 after deduction every two weeks. There's some places where firemen are making $2,000 a week, making $100,000 a year. There's plenty of places out there like that. What happens when that guy just gets cut down to you know $50,000 a year instead of $100,000 a year? What happens to the economy? This is what's coming, and it's coming everywhere. Scranton, Central Falls... Providence, right? Detroit, all these cities, folks. What I tell you, they are. They're, uh, you know, what do we just have? Stockton, California. That other town in California went right after Stockton. These are nothing. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. These are canaries in the coal mine. 
These are the birds dropping over in the cage. The gas is coming. It's about to knock us all out if we don't get out of the hole. That's what I'm telling you. And the government isn't going to get you out of the hole because there are two solutions, as always, whether at the federal... Because we say, well, local government's better. Okay, Scranton, I don't know if it, you, most of you guys have probably never been to Scranton. It's a quaint little small town city. It's not that big. It's, it's, it's got some stuff going on, but it's really not that big a place. You know, it's, it, it's, it, it's, it's smaller than most of what you know, the average American thinks of when they think of a city, a true city, especially somebody that lives in a, you know, a, a, like a Dallas or a Houston or whatever that looks at a city as being like Arlington, right? And Arlington or Mansfield is a city. Scranton is nowhere near as big as Arlington, Texas, which is like this you know, mid-city in between Dallas and Fort Worth. Nowhere near as big. And yet their solution... And their debate about the solution is exactly the same one that the ass clowns up on the hill are having. Do we tax our way out of it, or do we borrow our way out of it, or do we do both? But not let's reduce the cost, right? How much of that $16.8 million gap could it be made up with legitimate cuts? Would some people lose jobs? Likely. Are there probably some people working in the city government in any city that aren't really necessary? Uh-huh, right? And you say, but what about those poor people? I feel bad for you. But you don't get to get a job at my expense just because you're a nice guy. Your job has to serve a function that's necessary. If it's not a necessary function, no government, whether state or local or federal, should be doing it. And many things that a lot of these people are doing are not necessary. I'm sorry. And it's probably not, it's not 50%, but it's probably 10% of government workers across the board could be gotten rid of tomorrow And yes, some of the things that people have come to expect might not be there, but they're not necessary. There's a difference between what you want and what you have to have. If government felt filled only its necessary roles, how much money could be saved? But we don't want that discussion. People want to pay no taxes and get all the goodies. That's the average American today. They want to pay as little as possible and get as much out as they can because they think of it as a benefit. Let me tell you something. There is no such thing if it's paid for by somebody else's money is a government benefit. A benefit is when you pay into something like Social Security is supposed to work and you get a return on your own money that you paid in and the work that you did to generate the employer side. That would be a government benefit, right? Getting money to do a job that's not necessary is not a government benefit. It is a gift to you by your fellow taxpayers that are paying the bill so that you can have a job to do something that's not necessary. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's, again, the system's the problem, not the people in it. But the people need to become aware of it, and we need to stop being uncomfortable with having honest conversations about the fact there's only so much money, we can only afford so many things, and that means certain things have to be cut, and that means certain people will lose jobs, and they need to go find something to do in the private sector. And if we cut the government, the private sector would grow sufficiently so that we could all, if we really wanted to, go out and find something to do with ourselves. Here's a little non-heavy uh, subject, one more before we get to the final one that's going to be kind of heavy today. Um, I talked uh, to Holly Baird, who was on the day after 4th of July, a little bonus show that I uh, worked in for you guys, even though I was taking the week off. And uh, we talked about a lot of things, including squash vine borers and the fact that up north where, where Holly lives, she doesn't have them, but down here in the south, they are the bane of a squash grower's existence, these damn things. Uh, they crawl inside the vine and they eat everything out of the middle and you're trying to grow squash in your plant, you just die eventually. Um, Alan says, okay, I've had squash vine borers for the last two seasons. This year, a retired agricultural teacher try, told me to try mothballs at the base of the plant. This year, I've had no squash vine borers. 
Uh, might be worth a try. I buy my mothballs at the dollar store. The chemical question in question marks. I'm not sure which one. In these mothballs contain the ingredient that's also safe when using when storing beehive bodies and the supers to protect them from moths. Some mothballs are not safe to use with storing beehive bodies and supers. Now I looked into this because I wasn't quite sure uh, what that meant. The chemical in question that's used in like supers and hives when they're being stored without bees in them is apparently something called PDB. And it seems like they're more common in moth crystals than moth balls. And there seems to be another chemical called P-DCB. And you're not even supposed to put those two together for some reason. I don't really understand. Uh, but it doesn't seem to me like even the PDB is safe for bees because if you use it in these, these hives and supers, um, when you're bringing them out of stores, they have to air out for a long time before you put bees back in them and all. So it seems like it's maybe not a good thing for bees. It's just not as harmful as the other type. And I'm not even sure I have that right. And maybe somebody as a beekeeper that's familiar with this can let us know. But uh, assuming they're just on the ground and not everywhere else and just near the vine, and it, if it doesn't seem to have an adverse effect on bees – it might be a very good uh, deterrent. And here's why. The squash vine borer looks kind of like a wasp mimic, the, the adult fly, but it's actually a, a moth. So since it's a moth, you would think moth crystals would repel it. My concern with mothballs or moth crystals in the garden or on a farm is with rain and precipitation dissolving the crystals into the soil. So I would think that maybe one way around that would be to put them in some type of a container with maybe a little hole in the side so that if it did start to rain, that like once it got up to a certain part, the overflow would, would not fill up. And then uh, go out every time it rains and dump the water off somewhere away from your garden soil because I don't know enough about mothballs to know what kind of damage it might do to, to the soil. But it seems like it might work for the squash vine borers, and you wouldn't need them everywhere, just at the base of the vines, because that's where the little devils tend to go in. So this is not something I'm recommending yet. I really don't know. I have no doubt that it might be effective, but I don't know yet whether it's safe or not for the garden flora, for other insects that are beneficials, and for the garden soil itself. So anybody that has more info on this and what harm it could or may not do to bees, how we could use it without harming bees, or if it's just like you really can't, you're going to be hurting bees if you do this, I'd love to hear from you. Please do it in the show notes in the comments section. Don't send me an email. That way everybody can kind of share in on your discussion and wisdom. Uh, let's take one more before we finish up. This comes from Mike, who was recently at my house with uh, a large uh, contingent of uh, uh, actually, no, this is Mike was there with just his father, uh, and they were in Hot Springs, and they came up to my place, and we had some beers together and cooked out. And uh, Mike is serving in the military. Thank you for your service, Mike. He's over in Germany, and he sends me the following. I visited Dachau concentration camps last week. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, but it's a concentration camp in Germany, obviously. It was a very sobering experience, walking through the displays and seeing what took place. What got me the most was the timeline that depicted Hitler's rise. I've read about the Weimar Republic and the Treaty of Versailles, uh, Versailles, but at this, but this put it all together. After Germany lost World War One, their economy was in shambles. They were forced to pay restitution to the countries they invaded. And while at the same time they had massive unemployment due to everyone involved from the military industrial machine left without a job. This all led to the Weimar Republic, and eventually Hitler came to power speaking about nationalism 
and bringing Germany back as a world power. Most preppers see an economic crash as a way to hit a reset button. We know it will suck, but everyone believes in the end it will lead to less government and regulation. Do you think a crash would give an opportunity to a person or a group to come in and organize the sheeple with promises of a better tomorrow but still lead us down a similar path? And I would add to it maybe a worse path. And the answer is, yes, Mike, you're right. An economic collapse in this country is either going to be hitting a reset button so that we can go back to the roots of our constitutional republic or become a tremendous vacuum into which a much more tyrannical power will invade. And one of the ways this could happen is simply by anybody who shows up to fix the problem. So the Chinese, for instance, are already building at least one giant little China island in the middle of the United States. They call them economic development zones. And they're going to bring in like 50,000 Chinese, and they're flush with money. And they're making these things into self-sustaining communities. In other words, they don't need anything from us. They just produce stuff here in the United States. So it's Chinese product being built in the United States and, uh, and then sold into the United States, but they're not asking for anything back. They're self-sufficient. This is an old story that I had out a long time ago. Idaho, of all places, where they want to do this. China wants to construct a 50-square-mile self-sustaining city south of Boise, Idaho. Uh, it's an old article, but it's legit. It vetted out that this is, you know, and, and Idaho is thinking about making the deal. Uh, 10,000 to 30,000-acre self-sustaining city being planned that would essentially belong to the Chinese government. The planned self-sustaining city in Idaho would include manufacturing cities, warehouses, retail centers, Large numbers of home for Chinese workers basically would be a slice of communist China dropped right in the middle of the United States. So let's say over the next 10 years, China builds a bunch of these things. And they have all kinds of food and money and supplies and stuff like that, and this country starts to fall apart. How many sheeple would sell their souls for a slice of bread in that situation? How many people are so ignorant of their rights they wouldn't even know they're being violated? Would it be a cooperative thing between our government and their government rather than some kind of hostile takeover? Who knows? Who knows? But yeah, Mike's right. It could go either way. This is what I was talking about earlier. This is why we have to have the conversations now. What is the role of the state government? What is the role of the federal government? What are the rights, duties, and responsibilities of the citizen? We need these conversations now. We need to have conversations with people that we disagree with politically about these things without the politics. Because believe it or not, if we actually followed the legal structure that we're supposed to follow, the citizen with the ultimate sovereignty bequeathed to the, the local government and the states on loan from the people, and then some of that sovereignty passed on to the federal government with a federal mandate that the federal government be a check on abuses by the states over the people, if we did that... 90% of our problems would go away. They really would. Now, they wouldn't now. See, the government's created so many problems. And this, as I'm calling it, and I think I've been ripped off by Russia today again, right? Monetary event horizon is going to happen. You can't fix it now. It's already been done. It's been done by design. And the people that did it know very well what it's going to lead to, and they have a plan... Okay, this is the important thing. We cannot pretend that they don't have a plan for when it happens. That they're going to be, I mean, I think well, this is where Chris, Chris Dwayne and I disagree a little bit. He thinks they're going to be so, so in shock that this thing fell apart, they're not going to be able to hold it together. I think they have a plan for exactly what to do when it falls apart. 
And it's going to be up to the citizens to stand up and the citizens to be responsible and the citizens to stand up for their rights and the citizens to stand up and partake in their responsibility to reconstruct the country so that the vacuum won't be filled by the tyrants. That means you're going to have to take care of the idiot that didn't get prepared. That means you're going to have to stand up for their rights. That doesn't mean you will give them all your stuff so you have nothing. That doesn't mean you're stupid about it and say, hey guys, I got a bunch of food in my basement. That doesn't mean that. But it means that it's up to us to put systems and structure in place when they fall down. Because if you don't, guess what? Somebody else will. And the only way the citizenry is going to be able to get up collectively together and do this is for at that time to be able to put politics aside about what's the best idea and go to the immediate, let's fix the problem and hold it together and then we'll debate that And that can be done within the confines of the legal structure of our republic. That's going to be the only hope so that the reset button's a reset button and not just economic disaster set up 2.0, which is what they're planning for. They're planning they're going to basically walk away from this casino after they take one more big pile of chips off the table, let us all kill each other, impose tyranny, and then begin a reconstruction process where they start milking the cow again. That's their plan. How do you break away from that? You use the void as an opportunity. When it happens, you go out and you help your fellow citizenry. You defend the weak. You feed the hungry. You don't do that. You just hang out in your little hole like a lot of survivalists think they're going to do. right? And I'm not talking about going out and harming anybody. right? I'm talking about going out and defending people. I'm talking about going out and protecting people. I'm talking about holding your... You can't go out and... like This is not some... Du- Nonsense, you know, no Red Dawn bullshit guy going out patrolling or whatever like that. I'm talking about your little community, the people around you, just your neighborhood. That's what we need thousands and thousands and thousands of people in place. Not to feed the whole neighborhood, but to help the neighborhood feed itself, to organize, to control, to prevent looting. So that the people don't get desperate and make a deal with the devil. And in some places they're going to make deals with the devil. They really are. Like New York City and Chicago and Detroit and Los Angeles. Right, Those places are not going to be salvageable with the means that I'm talking about. They're just not. There's too many people that will never listen. And those people are going to get really, really hurt. And the only hope is, in the end, the, the side of right prevails because the side of right is the, the side that follows human decency and common sense. But if we don't step up and fill the vacuum, somebody will. And no, it won't get better. It'll get worse. Mike's absolutely right about that. The good news is, We have plenty of time. We have plenty of time to prepare for this. I don't mean like go back to sleep, go become a grasshopper again, you got 20 years time. I mean, we got time. This is, again, it's a monetary event horizon. We're slowly going into the hole, right? Eventually it'll look like we just fell in the hole overnight. We got plenty of time between now and when that happens. Plenty of time to get prepared. As long as we're acting right now, as long as we're changing our hearts, our minds, and our souls right now, as long as we're preparing physically, spiritually, materialistically, right, the, the preps on all levels. As long as we're doing that now, we'll be able to stand in that fight and we'll be able to give it hell. And that's all anybody can ever be asked to do, to do their best, to stand up as a citizen, to fight for their fellow citizens. That's what it's going to be incumbent upon us to do. And we're going to have to do it. Because if we don't, who is? Let me ask you, if you don't, who will? If you that are aware, that are so aware that you're listening to me and listen to me often, if you don't stand up, what kind of person is going to stand up? Is that person going to stand up as a defender of his fellow citizenry? 
Or is that person going to stand up as a, as a victimizer of, of their fellow citizenry? You know the answer. So be prepared as much to take care of yourself and your own family as to take care of your fellow citizenry. Again, this is not, you know, let's, let's mobilize everybody and go take, you know, take on the tyrants. This is holding your community together so that it won't make the deal with the devil. Because the devil will appear at the worst times. And I'm not being spiritual about that. I'm being completely metaphorical. I don't care what your religious beliefs are, including if you have none. The metaphorical devil will absolutely appear when human conditions are at their worst. And he will ask you to make a deal with him. And the deal is always the same. Just a little bit more of your freedom. Just a little bit of your more of your rights. Just a little bit more of your individuality. Just a little bit more. And I'll feed you. I'll help you. I'll take care of you. I'll make all the bad stuff go away. It takes a strong person in the worst of times to tell that devil to go F himself. And the only way your fellow citizens are going to be strong enough is for you to be an example. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Hoping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.